Hi, this is Thomas DePaulo. This is Dole. Hi, this is William Roy. This is Kevin. This is Jake Cook. Hey, this is Melon Bread. You're listening to the Green Box. Today on the Green Box, we talk with Greg Stolze. Greg is one of the Delta Green developers, but we also ask him about his work on Unknown Armies, his personal fiction projects, and some Kickstarters that he's been working on recently. So, uh, welcome to the show, Greg Solzy. Hello. For anyone out there who may not know who you are, which is probably a small number, why don't you give us a real brief rundown on... Uh, on who you are in this universe. Um, well, in the gaming field, I uh, did a ton of stuff for White Wolf in the 90s, uh, worked for AEG way back at the beginning of my career, then moved on, uh, was not at the very beginning of Delta Green, but was pr- got into that pretty early. Um eventually started writing my own system the most popular of which is probably the one roll engine uh or maybe unknown armies uh it's it's hard for me to think of unknown armies as my own thing as it was such a a very much a two-part collaboration with john tynes uh one roll engine which powers a fantasy game called rain uh, is also used for wild talents from the same people who publish um delta green so it's a just a big old, big old cluster of various projects. So yeah, um, and today, just waiting to get the hard copy of uh, Control Group, these scenarios that have been in development for a while, and the uh, the PDF of them is out. The PDF looks fantastic. Yeah, there's that really cool map in there that shows you a bunch of unoccupied Kansas. There is. <laughs> Look, that's not my proudest map, but it's I'm proud of all the maps in that in that book. You did the maps in Control Group? Yeah, that was me. Nice. Yeah, I think a bunch of us were involved in some of the playtests for Control Group, so we're pretty pumped about that too. What I really liked about Control Group is when it when we first started playtesting it, it was still in the here's a tutorial that's going to slowly give you more rules phase, and a lot of us I think saw that and were like, well, it "Was a cool idea, but it feels like." Players who get ahead of the tutorial kind of get lost. So I was really glad to see that it became more of just a good group of scenarios that can be an intro to Delta Green rather than a kind of a forced handhold tutorial. Will and I were part of the the really really OG um, blast of playtests for Wormwood Arena back Wormwood, before. Yeah. I think it was part to be uh, supposed to be part of Control Group. Uh, well, it has become part of Control Group. Uh, it was always meant to be its own thing, but a lot of material got shifted around. Uh, I liked the idea of a tutorial, uh, a series of tutorial scenarios where, you know, the first one, it's like, okay, let's not bother ourselves with a complicated combat system because this is a scenario where there are no combat options at all. Um, And that one was inspired by uh, just a passing thing that I think Shane put in the early Delta Green manuscript was, you know, an example of, you know, the pilot skill could be pilot space shuttle. And I'm like, really? 
So is that you just calling him out? No, that was me saying, okay, well, let's let's run with that a little bit. What would be a cool scenario where you need a space shuttle pilot? And so it just it, it just developed. Uh, you know, I read up on the on what flying a space shuttle is like, and that led me to the obsessive culture of shuttle astronauts. Um, the guy who wrote the book Writing Rockets talked about how I love Mike Mullane. How intensely everyone wanted to be in the program, and uh, you know, he talked about how many enemies he gave himself before his physical because. They'd said, you know, now no more than one anima. And he's like, ah, clearly, clearly this is the cheat code. One thing I think was missing from Black Sat that would have really helped to set that off is just what absolute death traps the shuttles were. <laughs> that it was something that just, just from, from the ground up was just not safe. Yeah, I was just going to say, Greg, in the course of your research, did you happen to read Richard Feynman's memoirs? I did not, no. Well, Feynman was on the investigation committee for the Challenger disaster. The first of the two exploded shuttles. Yeah. Oh, God. He had his, his, um, his account of the investigation, uh, Mr. Feynman goes to Washington, is quite a read. I'll bet. Um, there was, oh, there was a book I read from a guy named Zubrin called, uh, oh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was about... Uh, you know, Zubrin is a Mars enthusiast and worked for NASA, and he's like, we should go to Mars, we should go to Mars, we should go to Mars. And his, uh, you know, one of the chapter, you know, and he's like, we should skip the moon. The moon is crap. If you found a cinder block... Skip the moon? <laughs> it's like, if you found a cinder block on the moon, you would mine it for water. He's like, that's how hostile an environment the moon is. Mars is much more clement. Comparatively... Colonizing Mars would be like colonizing the Caribbean as opposed to colonizing Antarctica, which would be the moon. It's like the moon's just crap. There's nothing there um, that that is useful for human life. Um, but he's like Mars, though. He's like Mars only needs a little bit of work to to make you okay there. Um, and I don't know how outdated his information was. There's but a one bit of... more lunar water than we used to think. Is, is yeah. I think the latest state of the meta polar craters? Yeah. Also, Mars farther away. Much, farther yeah. Away. A lot, a lot farther. Uh, he had some some interesting plans for that, too, uh, about how to do the return trip, which was basically before anyone even got there, you needed to have remote, uh, remotely functioning fuel refineries working on Mars. Why Why do they have to return? I want to colonize well, Mars. Let's colonize it. Okay. He's Well, you know, part of it is his staged thing of, uh, let's explore it first. And then, you know, once we've gotten the idea that we can get there and back, we can start... No, that shit's ours. Yeah. <laughs> Every planet in the solar system belongs to humanity. Yeah. Except Europa. Yeah, yeah. Except no landings there. Um. Oh, but the thing I was... Before we, we've gotten distracted already, but the thing about Zubrin was that he said the space shuttle was a great... The way they designed the space shuttle was great if what you wanted to do was develop a lot of technologies that the private sector would then make a bunch of money off of. It's like, but I'm suggesting that for the ships that take us to Mars and that get us ready to go to Mars, we maybe just design these ships to be really good ships first. And he's like, you know, the, the space shuttle is so delicate. It's like everything about it was, you know, built to be 
this this super fine, perfectly balanced, reusable thing. He's like, no, let's just do slamming big rockets and get there. Did you hear about this? The Soviets built, they built a clone of the space shuttle called the Buran. And the thing about this was that they built it before they knew what the space shuttle was for. They just knew that if the Americans were building it, it had to be awesome and they needed to not get left behind. I, I knew they built Buran, but they ne- did the, it never flew, did it? No. It, it, they, they were able to glide it as a test, but it never actually launched. The last I heard that it had been crushed when the roof of its hangar in Kazakhstan collapsed on it. Mm-hmm. I know they abandoned it. Which is what SV-8 wants you to believe. <laughs> so I want to drag the conversation back towards, towards Delta Green. and uh, In terms of the new Delta Green edition, or, or current Delta Green edition, what was your hand? What, what's, what's your biggest contrib- contrib- contribution? There we go, to that uh, book. Uh, probably uh, kill damage. Um, or lethality damage now. That's my favorite part, man. It's just so smooth. Well, it was inspired by a, uh, a Gen Con game run by Scott Glancy, and um, Ross Payton had the hottest dice I think I've seen anyone get, like, in any game. It it kind of derailed Scott's thing, because, you know, the assumption was, oh, yeah, you know the uh, the deep ones will come will will swim along will pull their boats up alongside and their leader will cast this spell to ensorcel uh, the commander which only has like you know you only have a one in ten chance of resisting it and then uh, you know and they're they've disguised themselves as civilians and then they'll just swarm aboard guns blazing and uh, Ross rolled to see through the illusion. And then got to the deck gun and committed the uh, most uh, most acceptable machine gunning of civilian craft in fictional history. And it just took forever to roll at the damage for every bullet that hit every individual as he's moving down the line. You know, my joke afterwards is, man, those guys are going to make sand checks when they see you from now on. I think there's kind of a spectrum of the length of combat in role-playing games in general. On one end, we have games like Dungeons & Dragons, where I know personally that combat sessions take a long time. And on the other end, maybe not the quickest combat ever, but certainly fairly quick, is Delta Green. And I definitely like that a lot more, how combat is a lot more, has a lot more brevity and somewhat less focus. Boss, because I've because I've had to explain it to the players so many times, and because even I'm not sure sometimes how it works, because I've heard uh, Shane Ivey do it a different way than I thought it was supposed to go. Can you ex- can you give us in your own words how the lethality system works for our listeners? Okay, so the way the lethality system works is that instead of you know running up damage and hoping that you exceed their uh, their hit points. And having it be that, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're going to roll 14 six-sided dice and total that up. And it's possible someone will survive if you get all ones. But what are the odds of that? Um, Instead, I'm like, why don't we just have it be a percentage of, okay, if, you know, this is its chance to just vaporize you. You know, if you get hit, roll the lethality. If it succeeds, then you're just gone. 
And, you know, we don't need to add anything up because you've been hit by an anti-vehicular round or some ridiculous thing. Uh, and if it doesn't hit its lethality, it merely does a gigantic amount of damage instead of whatever. So uh, there are... It's modified against, you know, very large creatures uh, so that, you know, if you're facing something the size of a haystack, it may not... You know, even with a lethality weapon, you may not be able to vaporize it, but you can at least put dents in it. Uh, so that's that's the quick and dirty version of it. Other things, you know, I'm just like, yeah, you know, if it's if it's something that's not tangible or doesn't have its any vulnerable bits in our dimension, yeah, it may just glance this off, and uh, you know, your anti tank round does no more damage than harsh language would. Incoming rules for harsh language attacks. <laughs> You need a you need a special book for those. Well, so in, in fifth, you can drop cutting words and um, cutting words and uh, vicious mockery. Uh, vicious mockery, yeah, and it's a great assassination weapon because only the target can hear it. So the king walks by and you say, you know, king of my balls, maybe, and then he drops dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, I like the lethality system because it is an improvement over the old Call of Cthulhu where you had to roll damage per bullet, which people thought was pretty silly. Um, I think the lethality system I like because it's very, you know, it's quite streamlined. Um, I do remember it having some early hiccups, like in the early versions of the Handler's Guide. Um, the two most durable creatures were ghouls and uh, zombies because they took, I think it was 2d10 damage, which would then have to 1d10. So the nuke that would wipe out Cthulhu would deal 5 damage to them. That was not anything I wrote, man. Yeah, it's been stra- it's been straightened out th- since then. And um, that's what, but that's what, that's when you were, when you talk about the, um, you know, all the, the monsters now are all, you know, lethality damage of this percentage to discorporate a star spawn or to splatter a shaga, throw to pulp a polyp, or uh, things of that nature. There are there are qualities they would have where it's like, oh yeah, it's only semi-material, so damage even from lethality weapons is drastically reduced. What I wanted to do, this is something of a recurring theme in my my sort of design history is, okay, can we have the right amount of fun in the least amount of time? You've you've heard the uh, the saying that, oh yeah, this is a half hour of fun compressed into four hours. And uh, I, I, I want to avoid that. That's a, that's a philosophy I very strongly agree with, that we have... Uh, if, we're, if you're lucky, you've got one night a yes. week, and most people don't get that to play RPGs. So you need to you need to to really pump the gas, and that's uh, that. So that's something I very strongly uh, agree with you on. So the tricky part, you can always make it simpler, uh, but I always aim for uh, sort of emergent complexity rather than installed complexity. So installed complexity would be something like Starfleet battles, right? Where there's just paid, and I'm thinking of like how I played it in the 80s. I don't have any idea if it's out and what it looks like now, but I just remember pages and pages, and it had this numerical indexing system so that you could find the specific rule you needed for applying tractor beams to drone weaponry. And it was every, they had tried to think of every eventuality. Well, is that the one where you showed me the paragraph about how Romulans don't use non lethal weapons? Uh, what? I remember distinctly someone and someone showing me the rules from the very complicated Star Starfleet Hex Encounter spaceships battle game, and there was this whole elaborate paragraph on how to use you know your phases on stun mode, and it says yeah, Romulans don't fuck with that. I don't remember this. It sounds hilarious. 
I do feel like I should bring up the titular Phoenix Command board game, which uh, has Boo. has about ten tables to roll, and you, your bullet can actually like hit somebody, bounce <sighs> off an internal game. organ, bounce off another organ, damage a, a canteen on the way out. That's the other end of the spectrum. See, I don't think that's super. I, I don't think that that's terribly constructive. Um, I don't think that's what people are there for. Now, the example I would give of emergent complexity, the one everyone's played, is chess, where the individual pieces' moves are pretty simple, but the strategies that arise from their interactions are really, really complicated. And that's what I, I try to get at with my rules is, you know, I want you to have options that make sense, and I want the rules to reward you for paying attention, but at the same time, not punish you for being a casual, which is a hard balance to strike. But I I want it to feel like when you make a decision, your decisions matter more than what the dice turn up. And one of the one of the things I've been I've been noticing with Delta Green is that Delta Green, um, in contrast to something like Call of Cthulhu, either the early editions or the current editions, uh, in Call of Cthulhu they have um, complete stat blocks for every monster that go all the way up to any possible conceivable scale. So here's how it's here's how strong it is, here's how much damage its its SWAT attack does, here's how much HP it has. And the assumption is that the typical use case for any situation is basically infinite, where Delta Green kind of circumscribes it and says, realistically the biggest thing you're ever gonna get your hands on is a rocket launcher and the biggest thing you're ever gonna fight is maybe if you really make a mistake, this kind of mid tier monster and we don't actually need to know how many um how much constitution uh Shubnigrath has because the typical yeah. the typical gameplay case is the typical the typical fight in Delta Green is not shooting, you know, uh shooting a deck gun versus deep ones, it's two guys in a hallway at arm's length with pistols. And so that's what we're going to design our combat system around. Yep, where it's just ugly and crazy and there's a meaningful chance you'll both die. Yeah, they very they very much wanted us sort of nihilism in action system um so yeah that so that's fun um the other thing that's going on with the delta green system is uh, i think where you get the emergent complexity you know to the extent that i was able to that we were able to achieve that a lot of it is how your actions in combat are going to interact with the fiction of being a federal agent and it's like oh You've got a bullet hole in your arm. Where'd that come from when you were supposedly off doing what? Training in new forensic lab techniques? How'd that happen, Officer J? And so, you know, and if that doesn't get you, there's the whole issue of, oh, so what did it feel like when you had to, you know, kill that restrained thing that had, that looked just like you? What, what was it like killing your doppelganger? The real fiction is the, the federal agents facing consequences for their bad behavior. <laughs> cut, cut that part of the audio. We've said as much many times. Too late, it's on the internet now. Yeah. Consequences for federal agents is aged about as well as ice being a good way to hide. <sighs> yeah, it's a while back, I'm like, I've got to quit writing science fiction because I, it's just hard to keep up. And now I kind of feel the same way about horror sometimes. So, Greg, I I don't. This must have been a, a conversation we had at the last Gen Con because I don't think we've interacted much outside of that. Um, I remember you had a, or you mentioned like a design philosophy 
in terms of writing scenarios where you said if, if I can't do this to be the best at it, I won't try it. Is that um my am, am I misquoting you or is that still It's it's around there. Um that's not exactly right. What I feel is that if people are paying us money to design scenarios for them, I mean yeah, okay, there's a convenience factor, but I do not want to be the McDonald's of, you know, scenario design. I want to give them something that they never could have come up on, with on their own, something where they're like, whoa, this is the professional difference. I mean, I could have cooked some hamburgers on the grill, but this is like molecular gastronomy. That's the goal. How well I achieve it, I mm, well, you know, you got to have your... Uh, your reach exceed your grasp or else what's a heavens for. But I do not try to, I, I try to come up with something new, something different, something that's not just, oh, well, you're gonna, uh, you know, you're gonna find out that there's some weird stuff going on and you're gonna investigate and you're gonna find out that there's a cult focused around a monster and then you're gonna try and stop the cult. And if you stop the cult, great. And if you don't stop the cult, then the monster gets you. Which, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, you can run a bunch of really good games that way, especially if you are creating a tailored scenario for your players and your characters, where it's like, okay, this cult is an offshoot of the one you, you know, escaped from in your youth, and, you know, the location is going to be based on something we're all familiar with, so that it feels really real. That's what the home GM can do that I can't. So I'm like, I, that, that's what I view as sort of my competition is, you know, I have to write for people I don't know a scenario that's going to be as good as one that was created by someone who does know them or I better. I think one thing that I like about a uh, control group, because it's not you know, obviously, you're never going to get a perfect product. But one thing that I really like about it is that all four of the of the the um, vectors or incursions in all four scenarios are not just straight out of the book, um, like monster templates or magic spells or whatever. They're all four unique threats that riff on existing setting material, but do something different or use it in a different way than it has been used in previous materials. And I think that's super cool, because if you have players that are even moderately savvy, or especially the type of people we run the game for are often people who have read every single book, including the <laughs> tie-in novels. So to have something that's new is... Not, not only not only there's something new, but at the same time, when they hear, like, oh, it's the Cordis paper, they can be like, oh, hey, I recognize that. It doesn't necessarily right. help them. It gives them a clue, but it doesn't actually give away the scenario. It just is some cool background flavor knowledge. That was a bit of an Easter egg. And I mean, I think there's a, a place for it. With horror, you're always trying to create a sense that something is coming and we don't know what it is. And, um, and, and it's playing in that area between too much knowledge and too much ignorance. Uh, I've, I've tried to set up scenarios where, you know, the idea is that you are, your characters have entered a horror scenario and you know they're going to encounter bad stuff. That's, you know, that's the soul of the game. If you come into Delta Green trying to keep your characters safe and trying to avoid 
all uh, all peril, you're... I mean, you can play it that way, but why would you? It won't be fun, and it'll ruin everyone else's fun. You're there to see the monster. And I've tried to set it up that, you know, I, I, I kind of have in the back of my mind, the encounter with the unnatural is inevitable. But the way that you prepare for it may protect you, or may make it a thousand times worse. Such as three different flavors of ways to abort the shuttle mission before the scenario <laughs> even begins? Yeah, well, I mean, you had to have them in there. Well, to be fair, they're not in the final version, I don't believe so. No, they're, they're just in there as a cool descriptive text, which yeah. I do like. So it's, it seems like you did a lot of research uh, when you were writing Black Set. Like uh, you mentioned, looking into the history of the, the shuttle program, uh, looking into reading all those. You mentioned, uh, was it Zabroni? How how much research do you typically do when you're writing scenarios? Um, Somewhere between none and Ken Height. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I do a... I do it till my brain feels full. Uh, I, I, oftentimes it doesn't feel exactly like research because uh, if, and this is, you can't tell whether a scenario was written in a burst of fun, creative obsession or whether it was written, you know, as a miserable slog where every word was like a tooth getting pulled. Uh, You really, you really can't tell. what it was like from the creator's end by reading the final thing. Uh, but in Black Sack's case, I'm like, oh, let's just read this crazy stuff. Uh, you know, let's let's read about the, the wackiness of the space program. And I got a book by Mary Roach, Packing for Mars, that is not just very informative. It's it's very funny. And it's it's a... Anything she writes is amusing. It really felt at some points during the playtest like... The, there, there was really not that much that happened if you failed the roll space the roll spacesuit check, and so it was just a bit of padding. Mm. And it made sense from the perspective of this is a scenario that's teaching you how to do skill checks. But um, as the guy who was the pilot sitting there waiting for the other guys to finish rolling pilot spacesuit, yeah, I'll tell you what I was focused with in the the spacesuit sections was I really wanted to get to the part where the doctor is in the airlock with the monster behind her and the guys outside the airlock on the other side of it hammering to get in and she's like i am going to die if i open that airlock and they're going to die if i leave it closed that was sort of what i was uh, always trying to that that was the ball i was trying to put on the golf tee for that Pro- and I think I recommend that, you know, get the doctor, you know, if, you, if you've only got three players, have it be the doctor, one of the spacesuit guys, and one of the pilots. Uh, you know, the pilots, I think, are the ones most likely to survive the scenario. And part of the idea was that, oh, well, this is how you can build up a stable of emotionally star- scarred and mistrustful strangers who are now thrown together as a Delta Green team. Is that, you know, you've got one survivor from Black Sat, who's this disgraced shuttle pilot. And, uh, you know, then you've got this CDC doctor from, um, who was at Hudson's Well and all this stuff. I don't remember if it's in the final version of uh, Control Group, but in the draft that we had, it said, yeah, you can use the NASA guys as your characters later on if you want them to have, like, 80% in a vehicle that was mothballed in, like, 2011. Yeah. Because... Like, pilot's a profession that's kind of not that useful, even on a good day in Delta Green. 
because when does the handler ever actually give you a helicopter? A point and of so, order. Melon famously killed one of my characters who was a pilot by, after he gave me a helicopter. Uh, this is war. Survival is your responsibility. Yeah, are you never going to let him live that down, Kevin? What do you mean never live that down? I'm, I'm proud of it. The more he comes after me over it, the more defensive I'm not going to be because He's I'm only not... getting stronger. <laughs> <laughs> but, that was a th- that, but that was the thing is that um, all, the, all, all the other ones I completely agree with, they, they give you a great um, spread of characters because in the uh, in night visions you've got soldiers, but you've also got the kind of diplomatic person with the language skills. Well, they added the diplomat in. I wrote them up as uh, as NPCs, so that's a change. But it's a good one. I do like that one. I think I think that that philosophy. I would almost like to see that in Black Sat, where um, having that back and forth between the two uh, between between the shuttle crew and those the kind of civilian wizards who get stuck aboard. I wondered when I was pl- after playing that and after kind of hearing what the what the deal was with that scenario, I was wondering what if uh, and I know that it's hard because you're kind of you've, it's a struggle to get five people and so then you basically need seven if you want to do the full complement. Uh-huh. What what it would would it, what would it be like if those two were players? If the two sorcerers who were being sent up there to their deaths? Oh, it would be very difficult to do that within the sort of Delta Green milieu because the idea is that you know you know you can't Delta Green is premised on not relating to the cultists, right? I strongly um, disagree. <laughs> I think it's much more fun when you can relate to the cultists. I think that having every having all the villains be zero sand was one of the big flaws of the old game. I think this the new game does much better with making the villains feel a bit more believable for them to be kind of in between in that stage in between being a normal healthy person and being a completely totally drinking the kool-aid yeah but delta green i uh, delta green is not set up to have you dabble with the occult or to pursue it seriously also disagree um that's what anything is for and that's what that's what unknown armies is for yeah <laughs> but you don't play delta green as a horror game necessarily i think i think that part of the part of the fun is is uh seeing all those other people go to the go up to the well and come back changed and imagining what it would be like to take a drink yourself well and i did try to uh and this may be material that was removed from the books but i did try and push a little in that direction of sometimes reading the bad book is the only answer and sometimes you know yeah they they liken participating in the supernatural to handling plutonium right and like sometimes you got to handle the plutonium and you know there are the rules for okay here's how you learn that spell how's that going to how's that going to work out for you buddy um but there is having uh, having enchanters who are even as functional as the the two luggage characters in black sat i think is troubling uh especially if you're given them as Okay, you start with them after they've done all this weird self-transformation stuff that's given them strange brain electricity instead of, okay, well, you're going to start out as a normal guy and you're you're just going to learn this one thing for this one time in this very desperate situation. And look at that. It didn't even, you didn't even go blind. Well, maybe, maybe two missions down the road. You'll be tempted to, oh, well, you know, this would be super duper useful if I could just, you know, learn this one spell that would just let me talk to the ghouls. Just talk. We're just going to talk. That's all. It's not like I'm adopting their worldview. And you can sort of get that gradual, the like the fraud. 
and apparently frogs don't actually do this, I wouldn't know, but like where if you turn the we, heat we up just had slowly this analogy on, on our frog, Discord yeah. and someone made this exact point <laughs> that that it doesn't actually work. No, the frogs will jump out, but but yes, that, you know, if you present something as a gradual wading in instead of a single plunge, then people will adapt to it and they'll go, well, I'll just go this far. Well, I'll just go a little farther than that. And starting out with uh, the Black Sat Wizards who are already in up to their hairlines, I think would be would be jarring and would cost you more than it pays off. You're really going to hate my entry for the groups contest then. <laughs> Tell me about this contest. <laughs> I don't know about it. Uh, so we run contests at, at Night at the Opera and... Um... It's mostly just for fun. We occasionally put a prize pool together. So the idea is this time this time around we wanted to do a contest uh, to see who could design the most uh, interesting and fun um, mythos or Delta Green related group. So it can be like an agency that you know fights the unnatural. It can be a cult. It can be um, some people who have no idea what they're doing, but you know they know a single clever spell and they think that that it's going to solve all their problems. <laughs> it could be it could be somewhere in between an antagonist and a um... multi-level marketing scheme. Yeah, exactly. Something I was thinking about, um I was I was at uh, ChupacabraCon recently, which is this very fun uh it's a small convention in uh Texas, but it's 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 good for its size. Um it's a, a nice contrast to the immensity of Gen Con, which is the other convention I regularly attend. Uh, but the thought I had was, okay, if Delta Green is the game about how the government interacts with the unthinkable, how is the private sector going to respond? And, you know, Delta Green touches on this in March Technologies, but March Technologies is so... Uh, in the material I've seen, anyway, is so inter is so bound up with the government that you know it's it's like they can't move separately. Be What's the the uh, line about? They have their hands so deep in each other's pockets that they must move together to pickpocket a third. That was from Ambrose Bierce. When yeah, when we talked to Chris, uh, it sounded like he was trying to slightly move away from that. Possibly for the exact reason that you're describing. Move away from what? For from, which reason? From the idea of uh, he said specifically that, that in the in the future iterations, March Technologies is is deliberately they both in both the characters in game and him out of game is trying to move it away from association association with the U.S. government and towards being a truly independent power into themselves. With this with this idea of of uh, using the power of the private sector to weaponize unnatural so and so. Well, it wouldn't be weaponizing. That's a government maneuver. It would be profiteering from. True. Uh, the idea I came up with my uh, my working title is uh, King and Baker Consulting, and that the idea would be that you play this group of business consultants who understand that there's weird stuff out there, uh, but you know you get hired on when. Uh, corporations don't know what they're dealing with. But the big decision at the end of every scenario would be, okay, are you going to try and monetize this phenomenon or find a profit avenue for this? And if you don't ever do that, eventually all the corporations you're working for will stop giving you work and you'll you'll fail. You'll just dry up and blow away because they're like, look, man, we're not... We're not here to save lives. We're here to make money. The thought that came to me was uh, that this would work better with Rain. Um, Rain is focused on 
the idea of governments and organizations so that you could run a, uh, you know, it's it's written as a fantasy game, but we're expanding it with settings uh, in in its recent Kickstarter. So it's like, oh, you could run this as, okay, here's my business and it's statted up. And if my individual character dies, then, you know, the next character generation session is your HR interview to hire on with King and Baker Consultant. Um, but that, you know, if you, if you never do the thing that is presented in Delta Green as being the last thing you ever want to do, which is think that you can control this and be better off for having encountered it. If you don't do that, well, you know, you're going to run out of game and maybe you could write it that that is the high road and that is the, uh, you know, you could you could run that to a successful, uh, a satisfying conclusion where it's like, okay, yeah, you resisted every temptation and you got out of the game with your chips and your sanity and your family intact, and you you never sold out. That's one way you could do it, or you can become dirty sorcerers who only one third understand what they're actually doing, which I think would also be a very fun game. Anyway, it's an embryonic idea, and I'm wondering if it would work well with mythos horror, if I or if I'd want to use some other kind of horror for you know what is you know what is the core of corporate horror? Uh, you could do it very interestingly with like vampires, right? Could take a pa- pay- PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, I never use PowerPoint. I hear that stuff actually impairs your thought processes. I believe it. That explains a lot, actually. But yeah, I mean the. The idea of business people tampering with forces they cannot comprehend and saying, well, but yes, how do this is a terrible, ghastly uh, perversion of nature. How do we make how do we turn a profit off it? I don't know. I think there's something there. I It seems to speak to the current moment in history, if nothing else. So you could do it with vampires. You could do it with sort of uh, the Christian angels and devils approach. You could do it with Lovecraftian cosmic horror. You know, there's a lot of options. You could do it with Unknown Armies style sort of Gnostic humanist horror. I don't know. Like I said, it's just an idea sitting in a notebook right now. Yeah, I thought it was sitting in an ever-growing Excel spreadsheet that uh, was way too big to talk about. No, the Excel spreadsheet is project is unfinished projects. Um, you know, 19 projects, most of which are more than half done. It's it's the tragedy. So the so the notebook is stuff that hasn't been started, but it is an idea. And the Excel spreadsheet spreadsheet is something yes. started isn't done. I, I got it. I have many notebooks. How do you bring yourself to finish content? Because I've been having trouble getting things done by deadlines, even though. Um, a lot of times I find it's helpful to get help from someone else. Um, okay, so I belong to Naperville Writers Group, uh, which is an open group that any adult who's got 55 bucks to pay a year's membership can join all kinds of writers in it you know there are other horror writers other science fiction and fantasy writers but there are also uh you know we've got a guy who's got a science column in the paper we've got uh a number of poets uh some of them very very good we've got people writing light humor so it's a very broad audience. Uh, and I remember bringing in a horror story I'd written. Um, it eventually, it wound up on my webpage as locked up. And I brought it in 
uh, at, at an early stage, and I'm like, this is okay, uh, but I feel like the ending doesn't land, and I don't know why not. And this is a this is a bloody horror story about, you know, murderous teen girls in an insane asylum, right? Sounds like a party. <laughs> the best edit was one sentence from Esther Redelsheimer, who is who who writes these uh you know reflections on faith in everyday life and these you know charming memoirs about life with her husband through the years and you know she is not a horror fan okay but she reads this story gets to the end writes one sentence which is i just wish the other girl i wish i could have heard what the other girl had to say and i'm like you just fixed it you just fixed my broken story. And so that's what I recommend is having a fresh set of eyes or, you know, as many as you can get on it. A lot of times what is a terrible barrier for you is maybe not such a terrible barrier for someone who hasn't done the 90% of the work that you've put in. Someone who's coming to it just as, oh, let me look at this thing and regard it as itself, instead of regarding it as the product of all this toil. There was a guy, uh, I think it was the Gossworks guy, who was saying uh, you should show your work product to someone um, as soon as it is in a fit state to do so and as soon as you're comfortable, because if you wait, you're going you're gonna to make decisions that you can't take back. You're, you're not going to get the feedback that you need to fix the problem, and you're going to get stuck eventually and not have the motivation to finish it. But you need to show it to people while you're still able to make these changes and where it's not in this stage, this stage where you have to tear everything down and start over. I still think that to, I think that may be a length matter, too. I mean, fixing a short story is different from doing a complete renovation to a novel. And the other thing is that you also have to... It's, it's very hard. I think the kind of people who become writers tend to be a little touchy about feedback or criticism or people saying this isn't good and it can be hard but necessary to develop this sort of leathery resistance to criticism when you don't like it. Stephen King's advice, as I recall it, was show the thing to five or six people whose opinions respect and smile and nod and, you know, don't respond and if all five of them dislike different things, you may not have to change anything. But if two or three of them pick out the same thing as a problem, you've got to take a really hard look at that thing. And, you know, that that's happened. I, uh, I wrote a novel called Sinner, sort of a, a, super, <laughs> a superhero story from the villain's perspective. And... Uh, the feedback I got from more than one reader was the ending is just too bleak. You just can't, you can't have it that dark. And so, you know, I, I took a good hard look at it and had to uh, kill that darling and make it a little more tolerable to the reader. So speaking of some of your um, fiction writing, I have read and uh, contributed to the sort of disasters Kickstarter that I found of yours because it just seemed like such a. Uh, hey, God bless. I'm used to, and I love the patch, 
Yeah, the cat. Thank you. A lot of the Kickstarters I do are like big board games, and they're for, they take forever, and they're these huge things. So and I was like, oh, here's a inexpensive, quick little thing I can just read. So I hadn't really thought about that. But you've obviously been doing kind of crowdfunding since before, you know, back when it was known as the ransom model. Um, what have you? Yes. I mean, before it was crowdfunding. Yeah, exactly. I, I, so obviously, it seems like you like it. But what are your what have you seen over the years of now with Kickstarter coming up, and how do you see things going forward? Oh, um, I don't think it's going anywhere because it is tremendously useful for everyone involved. I mean, this is not one of those disruption technologies that's really just destroying an industry while venture capitalists back up something that might replace it, like Uber. I think this is genuinely an improvement on removing gatekeepers who previously had to be there because of the financial demands of publication. I mean, publishing something online is so, so, so much less demanding, both of physical resources and of risk, that, you know, anyone can do it. Anyone can pop up on Facebook, create an account, and if they wanted to, put out, you know, okay, I'm going to write a chapter, I'm going to write a page a day until I've put up my novel online on Facebook. Anyone could do that, and it might, it might actually be good. Previously, to get a novel published, you had to convince a publisher not only that it was good, or even not necessarily that it was good, but that it would be profitable because it cost a lot of money to print and bind and ship and store and market and sell physical books. I mean, I remember before crowdfunding, if you wanted to publish your own damn game, that was a second mortgage for you, buddy. And if it didn't work out, you were going to have uh, you were going to have pallets of unsold hardbacks staring accusingly at you from the corner of the garage for the next decade. People ruined their lives. People wrecked their marriage doing this. And I'm like, is there a way I can do this that is less risky? And I lucked onto one. I don't think it's necessarily true, but a lot of times I like to think of the internet as like an untreated sewer. So there might be gems in there, but it's it's definitely a cesspool. (laughs) So is there any merit? And I, I... my argument or my feeling is no, but back in the old days when everything to be published had to go through somebody else, did that weed out some of the bad stuff or is, is nowadays because there's so much out there, it's worth having all the... Oh, indisputably, indisputably bad stuff got weeded out in the old days when published books were the product of getting it past an agent and an editor and a publisher. But by the same token... A lot of good stuff was weeded out, too. Um, a lot of... I mean, this this is where you get your marginalized communities saying, Hey, you want to know why I can't find anyone like me in books? It's because no one like me was allowed to publish books because no one like me was allowed to edit books. And so there's a lot of, you know, racism and sexism in old publishing that's not hard to find. And so now that it's wide open for every, it's not completely wide open for everybody because you still need to be able to put in the time to write the thing. Uh, But the barriers are much lower than they used to be. The challenge now becomes one of curation, of sorting out the good material from the bad. And, you know, the 
the advantage I had coming into crowdfunding was that I had already established a readership with all those White Wolf books. You know, people people knew me. I'd been online trying my best to, uh, you know, be a civilized human being. And uh, so when I said, I have written this thing, I wasn't just some guy with no track record. Um, so yeah, a crowdfunding from somebody you know is a different matter from taking a flyer on somebody who has, who you've never seen anything they've done, and this is their first project, and they've, uh, they've never backed any other projects. That's always a red flag for me when I see something that's first created, none backed. I'm like, this? I'm not saying this is a cash grab, but if it was a cash grab, it would look exactly like this. So if you want to crowdfund, you need to give people assurances. Crowdfunding, the gas that makes the crowdfunding engine go is trust. And so the more reason you can give someone to trust you that you will fulfill what you've promised, the more they are, they will be willing to back your project. And so that's why, that's why I ransom out things that I have already written. Because that is the best guarantee I can offer that the thing is a thing. Um, is that, you know, no, it's done. It's written. All I have to do is put it up on my website. And that's different from, uh, you know, a lot of other projects that are, are saying, oh, well, once I get my $150,000, I'll make this, this fantastic minis game. Once I get my TV series done, then I'll finally write the last book. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh, too soon. Um... But I mean, this is this is why I use it for short stories is because, you know, that's something that I can manageably do. So and and, you know, now I have a reliable track record that I can point to and say, oh, well, you know, if you want to know if I'm actually going to do this thing, I'm promising. Look at the last 30 times that I've actually done the thing I promised then. That's how I do it. Um, Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm curious what uh, what have you backed that didn't come to fruition that you wish had? Mm. Uh, the one that immediately comes to mind was um, the guy from RPGNet who had a project to put a satellite in orbit. He had he was uh, he needed funding for this was back when the back in the old days when the space shuttle was flying, yeah. just anybody could buy a CubeSat and get it launched off the space shuttle. So he was going to get a CubeSat up there to read the uh, the Earth's magnetic field and transmit it down to the ground as sound files and then use that and put that out so that people could use the sounds of the Earth uh, as the basis for music. That's really cool. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, cool. that's weird, brother. I'm in. Uh, and it, I got a, a bumper sticker and a tie tack out of it, but he did not get his satellite in orbit. So that's that's disappointing. Um, you know, other stuff. I haven't backed anything super huge. Um, this is this is embarrassing to admit, but probably the most the most expensive things I've backed have been like shoes and belts. Oh, sensible material goods. I didn't know you could kickstart belts, but now I'm really curious. There's a whole fashion section, dude. I got some beautiful shoes out of it. You got me beat as far as sensible Kickstarters, Greg, because I backed Star Citizen. Hey, I made money on Star Citizen. <laughs> I backed it. 
couple years later, I you knew the smart thing. when it was a joke, I sold my stuff at a premium. That was actually a good investment for me. Well, I mean, part of uh, this is the peril of Kickstarter is that it can it can intoxicate you. And if you think that, oh, man, it's rain and cash. All I have to do is go outside with a bucket and promise people more stretch goals. Yeah, you can drown real fast. Getting overfunded is one of the worst things that can happen because uh, that's what happened to the Kingdom Death guy where he suddenly had to go back to the manufacturer and say, hey, we need 10 times as many units as we thought we needed. And then look mm-hmm. at that, it takes three years to get the thing shipped. You know, one of the, the stretch goal things for a campaign I saw recently that I really liked was when Caleb Stokes did one. And um, uh, the stretch goals were just paying my artists more. That's something that Iron Circus Comics does that uh, I'm like, yes, this makes sense. And, uh, you know, the advantage uh, and and OK, so I'm not reading into anyone's uh, motivations here. Obviously, the angelic motivation for doing that is that it's the right thing to do, that it's good to pay your creatives as much as you possibly can. But the diabolical motivation for doing that is is that it really incentivizes the people you're working with to get their hustle on and tell everybody and their cousin, yeah, back this thing, back this thing, back this thing. And it doesn't cost you any additional content to create, which is really important. Right. That's the biggest problem with stretch goals is they end up costing more than the main project did. Shadowrun Returns. Yeah. This is a thing that was pointed out in the Battletech Kickstarter when they were like, yeah, so we got some stretch goals, but they're just to, like, little things, you know, focus, what was it they said, focus equals quality? Yeah. You, you don't overstretch. You're better off just saying, okay, when we get to 10000 or 20000 or 30000 that's it. That's great. If you want to give more money, we'd love that, but we're not going to write a whole, we're not going to promise to write a whole new other book. So yeah, with the Termination Shot Kickstarter, we tried to, you know, it's like, okay, let's concentrate on the achievable and not try to overinflate this to you know uh, gigantic levels. Of course, the foolish thing I did was do that right around Christmas. Which man, I am not gonna get in the ring with the fat guy in the red suit again. That's terrible. That's we just got through that just barely, barely, barely. So, but yeah, you know, all's well that ends well. That is now. In uh, we've got the PDF for it mostly laid out, and it's just Violet Kirk doing art now. Do you have um, anything currently uh, uh, out there that you want to promote, or is it all in clo- anything that I'm plugging? Out? Um, I don't, uh, not well, you know, just you know, normally go go buy all my novels. <laughs> um, I don't have a Kickstarter up at the moment, which man, actually. I should allow myself to feel good about that for a bit. It's, uh, you know, it's nice to not be constantly checking how far it's come. Um, yeah, I'm sort of in the middle of a lot of projects, which is different from the uh, the business of uh, just having the, the spreadsheet of, of unfinished ones. Uh, Rain is mostly in layout um, and edits. We've got almost all of the third book for that done. Um, Termination Shock, in edits, we're figuring out how we're going to incorporate to do ongoing uh, support for that game. Um, And I've got a novel I'm editing that, yeah, that'll be just a whole 
big fat thing on its own. Uh, that was fun. I actually hired an editor to beat it into shape and was told, you haven't written a novel, Mr. Stolze. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you've written two novels. I'm like, but, but, but I don't, I don't want to. And she's like, no, 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 it's good. Just end it here after the first third, pad that out. And then when you go to sell it, tell them you have the sequel already written. Because so often they're, they always want a sequel. (laughs) They always want a sequel. And the sequels are often not as good as the opening book because the opening book the author has worked on for years and years and years and has been workshopping and polishing and refining and editing. And then it's like, oh, yeah, do a... uh, Can you do a sequel in nine months? You can do it in nine months, right? And so the sequel is not nearly as refined and polished and edited and well-conceived it's the first book, and that's why you get these second books that are kind of a sag. It's like, but you've already got it written because you thought you were just doing one book. So now what you can do is you can kickstart this and then include a stretch goal for a second book, and it's done. <laughs> I would like. I would. I'm. I'm experimenting with traditional publishing with this. I would like to. Good I, luck. I think. Yeah. Thank you. I think it can. I think it. I think it can do it, and uh, I think it would be, from sort of a strategic perspective, I'm like, yeah, let's get into bookstores where a lot more people can buy this and say, oh, hey, what's this thing in the back where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of free short stories at gregstolze.com. You'll you'll put in the, uh, the like, show notes for this a, a link to uh, my fiction library at gregstolze.com. Yes. There really is a large quantity of material there most of which has been underwritten by you know fans through kickstarter to loop it back to that topic um which is good for me because whenever i'm running a fiction kickstarter and people are like well is your stuff any good i can just point at that and say okay instead of me telling you how good it is why don't you go decide for yourself, read these stories, no obligation. If you like them, you'll probably like this other thing. And if you don't like them, hey, no blood, no foul, and I'm not putting you under high-pressure sales tactics. To bring things back to RPGs for a second, what's Termination Shock? Termination Shock, the idea is that you start out in this very desperate situation where... You are miners on Mar- in the asteroid belt or farmers on Mars who Fucking are sold. pinned between psychotic uh, murder bot AIs in the depths of the solar system uh, on one side. And on the other, you've got these uplifted superhumans on Earth and Venus who have used all this cognitive acceleration on themselves and own everything but refuse to export the technologies that you'd need to reach their level. I was like Eclipse Phase. Uh, I don't know. I haven't played Eclipse Phase. But the twist, uh, you know, so if you're if you're planning on buying Termination Shock and want to play it without knowing the twist, stop listening now, is that just as the Killbots are sweeping in with their big push, a disorganized uh, committee of aliens comes in with speakers blaring Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, come with me if you want to live, and that they are 
there to rescue unuplifted humanity because once you get out of the solar system past soul's termination shock, which is a scientific term you can look up, uh, the technologies that allow the AIs and the ex-humans to be so smart stop working and change into faster-than-light communication technology. Oh, it's like a fire upon the deep kind of situation. Which I also haven't read. <laughs> All right. In a fire upon the deep, um, you've got zones of thought around the universe where different technologies are possible depending on how far you are away from the galactic core. So uh -huh. in order to stop yourself from being AI'd, you have to go to the areas where superhuman uh, thinking machines can't exist because only, uh, only normal brains are allowed to work there. Something like that. Um, so you get out, and these aliens are like, okay, uh, now you're free. And they sort of don't stick the landing of explaining anything to you or taking care of you once they've gotten you out of the, imme the immediate uh, danger of being murked by killbots. Um, and so the, uh, when I came up with the game, I had conceived it as this very gritty dark bleak thing and then you get out and the aliens are really hard to understand and there's all these communication errors and the players i recruited for this who i didn't know well the first thing one of them said was well you know what i kind of want to do with this is base it on fraser huh. i'm like fraser the you mean fraser crane and the other players like oh yeah we could be two brothers who are just you know sort of stuffy intellectuals in a and it worked so well and became so much richer and better for having this sort of lightheartedness to it and the lighter touch. And so you have these characters who are, I swear to God, half Han Solo and half Niles Crane swanning around <laughs> this terribly confusing cosmopolitan setting. And that's Termination Shock. It sounds a bit one of one of my favorite parts of Transmetropolitan is when the revivals from like the normal human beings get kicked out into the future and they set foot on the street and they immediately get PTSD and go catatonic because they're trapped in this alien world that they can't understand where everything is horrible and you have, you know, people eating cloned human meat and with like dog brains and that's 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 what I think of when I think of this setting that you got here. And that's like one of my favorite parts of that book. So that sounds good. But it's not that bad. People adapt pretty quick because it's, uh, you know, these, the situation they wind up in is a post-scarcity economy, but it's like, uh, it's like the Gibson thing about the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so it's like, oh yeah, it's a post-scarcity economy, but it's not evenly distributed. And uh, most of what humanity has to offer is cultural. And it's like, you know, these aliens are like, yeah, I can give you, tell you what, I'll sell you this disintegrator if you explain to me gender roles, because man, I am really not understanding what those are. I'm, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop referencing other media properties that it reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had a, a ton of fun with it. And uh, yeah, I like I'm it. Actually... I like the way it sounds. We will have to check it out. So it's considerably lighter than Delta Green, but then what isn't? So, yeah, that's Termination Shack. You had me at Farmers on Mars, to be honest. that's You had me right there. Shark fin pastry, Farmers on Mars. Yes. The uh, the characters they came up with were um, spider farmers, specifically. What kind of spiders? Like, normal human spiders or, like... Uh... Yes. Nor normal earthling spiders uh, to... 
uh, optimized for silk production. I want to ask about a product that I'm pretty sure was kickstarted. If we're talking about sequels to things, I want to ask about um, Unknown Armies because I just finished reading Kraken by China Meville. Me- Meville. Me- that guy, I think. Yeah, that guy. And I thought that was pretty good, and that was a book that made me think of Unknown Armies the whole time I was reading it because it's all about the like the surrealist cults that exist to worship like mundane things and you know the power of belief in shaping the world and so on. I so haven't that, read it, but maybe I should. All right, it's the one. It's the one that people say Unknown Armies is knocked off of, but I'm pretty sure it came out in like the mid 2000s, whereas Unknown <laughs> Armies came back in like late 90s. Yeah, Kraken came yeah. out in at least like. 2010 when I was in college. Yeah, well, I quite liked it, and I think it. I think it's. Unknown great... Armies was 1997, baby. This is like people saying that Delta Green was a ripoff of the X Files that somehow got published like six months oh, earlier oh, by one year. Yeah. In, yeah. in fairness, that is absolutely an Unknown Armies scenario seed where somebody rips off a book <laughs> that's written 13 years in the future from when he starts. Time-traveling plagiarist, you son of a bitch. I'm going to show a little ignorance here. Um, and so I'm actually not very familiar with Unknown Armies. And I'm going to assume that be at least one of our listeners is as well. So can you, can you, ele- can you elevator pitch me Unknown Armies? Well, I'll, I'll do you one better. Instead of elevator pitching you, I'll, uh, I'll give you the inside baseball about how it relates to Delta Green. Um, so Unknown Armies was uh, originally co-authored by myself and John Tynes, John Tynes being one of the prime movers of the first Delta Green book. And he came to me with a pile of sort of wispy ideas. And he's like, I really want to do horror that isn't like the cosmic horror of Lovecraftian uh, uh, vast, unknowable cyclopean entities. He's like, I'm getting a little burned out on that and I want to do something different. And what we came up with was the idea that instead of humanity being these helpless grains of sand on an indifferent cosmic beach with unknowable distances off in the ocean that we would never perceive... We're like, what if human beings actually matter? What if we're the most important entities in the entire cosmos? What if every paranormal thing is some kind of shadow or funhouse mirror version of our desires and needs and obsessions and fears? And now, instead of the horror arising from disempowerment, the horror arises from over-empowerment, where it's like, yeah, every crappy thing that exists in the world is not, does, isn't there in spite of our power, but exactly because of it. We are the clumsy drunk gods who have battered this world into its current sorry state. You need to be more careful. And, you know, I guess in the, uh, you know, it, it it's particularly relevant in sort of the current uh, era of climate change denial and inaction. It's like, yeah, guess what? You know, we were more powerful than we thought, and we wrecked it. And, you know, we're probably powerful enough to fix it, but we just don't want to. And that's why Unknown Armies is scary. 
And it, it shifted around for uh, third edition. In third edition, I really uh, made the sort of the tracks that measure how damaged your personality is in various ways. I put that really front and center. And so it's it's very much a system where if you want to get things done, your ability to do so will depend on what has happened to you. If you are trying to get a house mortgage in Unknown Armies, that's going to be a lot easier if you've led a normal person life instead of a weird, violent person life. On the other hand, if you want to, uh, you know, run someone down in a car chase and drive their car off the road, now you're going to succeed if you've had a weird person life instead of a normal person life. And, you know, it's not that one's better than the other. It's just that they, they're different tools for different things. Um, what was going on in uh, Unknown Armies is it's always had this idea that there are different categories of mental strain. And uh, so that's worked its way into Delta Green a little bit um, with the idea that, you know, okay, just because you're an EMT and have seen all the blood and gore that you're ever going to need to, that doesn't mean that you're ready for weird mystic stuff. And similarly, and you know, and that, that weird mystic stuff, because it is like plutonium, you know, you just never develop a, uh, uh, you know, a resistance to it the way you can to, you know, people can get hardened to, uh, to blood and guts through exposure. Otherwise, you know, every heart surgery would end in tears. Uh, but yeah, that's the idea that, you know, okay, well, let's get you, uh, you know, you, you can have a character who can just shrug off the fact that, oh yeah, well, I'm in a bad situation now. I'm helpless. I've fallen into the hands of my enemies. They're probably going to torture me. That's, yeah, that's coming. Um, whereas other people would just be completely helpless and hyperventilating. But if you're acclimated to helplessness, then you're able to put it aside. Um, but yeah. And again, it's there to put the alienation of the unnatural again into high, uh, uh, high contrast. If someone like Adolf Lipus, who could, you know, shoot you in the face and then calmly get a meatball sub out of your fridge is freaked out by the unknowable, it must truly be terrible. One thing that we've struggled with, at least I know I've struggled with in Delta Green, and I think other people have expressed this, is that it is much harder in a role-playing game to convincingly design content that strikes at helplessness than at violence. Mm. Because violence is very comes very naturally to role-playing games, because at, at its core, even a game like Delta Green... Um, we ran the numbers on a post by Ken Scroggins of all the Delta Green scenarios, and I think about one quarter of them are solved with violence because that's it's, it makes sense from a narrative perspective. It's easy. It's easy to put and it's in a scenario, exciting, and people like it. It's fun, and but the thing about helplessness is that it's very hard to put in an RPG in a way that just doesn't an- annoy the players. So ways to let people play the game and make choices while simultaneously reinforcing that they are disempowered is something that I've always had had difficulties uh, replicating because there's suggested stuff for like bad stuff happening to your bonds and that is just so much 
it's not it's not it's not necessarily removed from the game, but it's it's not as immediate as that that uh, that violence track. So what are what are some ways that because uh, I I want to I want to help other people because I'm not the only one who has this problem. I know. Uh, what are some ways that you can bring that back into the game in a way that is engaging and allows for you know meaningful decisions uh, and so okay. on? Okay, uh, let's see. The thought that immediately came to me is that it it's easy to play Delta Green as the it, you defart de, defart you defart to you default to the hard men making hard choices kind of machismo, but if you bond them to uh, a uh, an NPC, especially one who is really helpless and ill-equipped for what's going on, and then either invert that relationship or have something happen to the people you're trying to save. That's, that's how, uh, I think, to do helplessness. There was a game Dennis ran that I think it's... Uh, I think it's the one that's in the main book it's the one where the kid shows up at the park and there's the extremely yeah, tall fulminate. yes that sounds right sentinels of twilight sentinels of twilight that's it and so in sentinels of twilight uh when we played that he just did dennis ran it uh i was a player and he did a very nice job of making the kid realistic in the sense that he was you know a little annoying and a little uh, weird, but also y- you felt like he was a real kid. And so when bad stuff started happening to him, I'm like, no, this makes perfect sense that this is the, uh, you know, the helplessness. Because I had a character who was really genuinely trying to make the best outcome out of these terrible, you know, ingredients. Uh, and so, you know, what was fun, it was, uh, the character was a, uh, a psychologist, and whenever he was talking to the kid or to the kid's parents, he had, like, this very soothing, relaxed, empathetic voice, and then, you know, when he's with the other agents, he's like, we're gonna have to gaslight the hell out of those parents to convince them that's <laughs> not their kid, but, I mean, the fact is, if it was their kid, he'd be ten years older, so... We're just going to have to present this as some kind of terrible joke, and they'll believe it because the alternative is unthinkable. It's sad, but they'll be happier once we've fooled them. That is so heartwarming because usually when I hear about people playing that scenario, it ends with them shooting the child. <laughs> or it doesn't even end with them. Sometimes it's halfway through. It's midway through. Yeah, like they like 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 literally, I, I can count probably on. I, I might need two hands, I'm not sure. It's one of those things where I actually can't remember now how many of those playthroughs are just the same one being described to me in different circumstances. But it's definitely... Um, I know, Tom, you were saying that that's a scenario that's great because uh, it's not like other scenarios where you choose how to approach something. That The way that that scenario starts is that you're already inside of the scenario that's completely fucked and you have to find a way out. Yeah, it's a very Detwiller-style scenario. <laughs> if, you, if you've never played any of the other... Uh, Dennis Detwiller, Delta Green scenarios. This is a great introduction to his philosophy. This was a discussion that came up at ChupacabraCon was about uh, how do you... It was sort of the opposite question of how do you convince... Well, it was it was about the balance between having very empowered characters and very powerless characters. And what I suggested was a good balance was that, okay, yeah... 
by the scale of humanity, Delta Green characters are the shit. They are federal agents, and they can badge people, and they can get away with anything, and they have all these resources and all this immense social capital where they can just make people do what they want, and then if they don't, if they've got a problem with someone, they can just bad-jacket them and have them thrown in jail. Uh, but on the cosmic scale, it's like, there are so many things you are going to want to fix that you can't fix, and you are just going to have to sit with that, and that, you know, your best outcome for this is that only six people died, and that you only had to put one innocent person in jail to keep other people from getting in the same bad situation. That's the win. So making helplessness uh, uh, realistically threatening while still having it be an interesting game, I think comes from knowing when to give players power and then taking it away from them. This is, uh, it's a little bit like Scott Glancy's... Uh, uh, observation that heavy weaponry is like a security blanket for characters in Delta Green, and that he's like, yeah, I'll, I will give characters just any old weapon they want. And where they're like, I'm like, oh, will you go into the scary old abandoned caves? Well, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go in the scary old abandoned caves. Well, what if we equip you with a rocket launcher? Okay. That's genius. I'm going to start doing that. I think I can go in those caves now. And then, of course, once they're in the caves, the rockets do them no good whatsoever. Uh, or, you know, and in the cave example, I'd be like, oh, I think that rocket might have knocked something loose, man. The, that tunnel doesn't look real solid well, what, what anymore. What you do is if, if, if someone fires a rocket in a cave, they're going to backblast themselves and they're probably going to die. This comes up a lot. And there's always a, there's a, there's a, a, a Heinland quote that I bring up whenever this idea comes up. Greg, have you read Highland? Yes, long ago. Okay, have you read Tunnel in the Sky? I read Tunnel in the Sky. That was one of uh, one of my favorites, actually. I, I actually really enjoyed that. A lot of people say um, Stranger in a Strange Land is, is, is best. I think Tunnel in the Sky was... I couldn't get through the first chapter of Stranger in a Strange Land. They're, they're very different books trying to do very different things. So for the benefit of our listeners, Tunnel in the Sky is basically about like stargates um and there's a bit where the main character is like he's 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 getting ready for his survival exam and his i think his, his sister says look don't bring a gun a gun makes you stupid do you think if you have a gun you will feel safer than you are instead of the frail hairless monkey that, that you actually are so don't bring a gun that way you'll be scared if you're scared you'll be alive yep and she had an example of you know yeah uh on my survival test they put me through to this planet and the Within the first day, I'd encountered a. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, she'd brought a gun. It was but like a something's it. griffin. She she dropped it so she didn't have it, and then she got like dive bombed by some giant monster griffin thing, and she was like, well, by I a had something gri something's griffin, and she's like, yeah. if I'd had a gun, I would have tried to shoot it, and because it has a decentralized nervous system, it would have just shrugged it off. Well, you need a gun with a bigger lethality rating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You need to get that automatic fire. You need to get that, uh, you know, hollow, hollow sight for a plus 20% chance to hit. <laughs> the thing that can shoot through an engine block, sure. That'll help you with your flying polyp that's demi-real. Well, yeah, because there's a certain lethality. One of the things is that all the monsters in Delta Green have a certain lethality breakpoint, uh, past which they take damage, but if anything's lower than that, they don't. And it is something that we've had trouble with in games because you get into these situations where um, 
I've had people running running scenarios where there's a you know a monster is like oh we'll throw a, we'll throw a Molotov cocktail and it does nothing because he's, the guy's using the template for the Shoggoth and the Shoggoth says it doesn't take damage until you get to like 50 60 percent lethality. So the problem there is then you can't communicate to the player with that mechanic that that would work if you're using a bigger weapon. There is some threshold of of uh, of just of just making the explosion slowly bigger than until it will do damage. Uh, because they've they've done it, it didn't work, and now they're going to either write it off as unkillable or uh, otherwise go in the opposite direction where they need to be. Well, writing it off as unkillable is not necessarily... It's, it's, writing it off as unkillable is this is this smart choice, but for the sake of a scenario where you, the assumptions that you're a Delta Green agent that's supposed to be doing something about it can uh, get you in trouble. Yeah, well, I mean, it's that's why... I... You try, you try to have other options. You try to have, you know, other alternatives. Yeah, and definitely. This is this is where the, um, you know, the Dunwich Horror approach comes in, where it's like, okay, yeah, you want to open that book? That book might just have all the answer, might have the answer that you need, or it might eat your brain, or probably both. One of the things that I I like about the original suite of stories that these games are based on is that they present a very broad range of how you deal with the problem. Because there's some where he, he turns around and runs away because he's scared, mm-hmm. and then he survives. There's some where he turns and runs and he dies. There's some where the magic book kills you. There's some where the magic book saves your life. And there's some where you can kill things with a gun. Yep. People forget that the first time the Migo appear, they get they fall off a roof, they get eaten by a dog, and they get shot to pieces by a guy with a rifle. They're freaking jobbers. Yeah, this this was something I put in. I I can't remember if it made it into the uh, you know the main. Yeah, book yeah, the, with... yeah, the one where you say the characters blaze away with a rifle, and the only thing that's changed is that we're better at killing human beings now. <laughs> um, no, that wasn't my line. Mine was going to be that you know, oh, the damnable thing is sometimes opening fire works perfectly, but sometimes it's the worst thing you could do. Did you put the line in Warm Water Arena where it says that killing all the cultists actually works? Yes, unfortunately. That was my, unfortunately, the most morally abhorrent option is, from Delta Green's perspective, Peachy Keen. Is that if you just amorally kill all these people who accidentally got in over their heads, that prevents the unspeakable horror from achieving its goal. But yeah, it's... And, you know, I'm sure some groups are going to do that, and then the GM's going to be like, okay, what next? And they're going to be like, I don't know what next. It's like, how are you going to cover this up? Sprinkle some crack on them. Yeah. Well, there are two kinds of scenarios that we like to kind of uh, beat on on the podcast. One is the scenario where if the Delta Green team just went to the coffee shop and had donuts, the scenario would resolve itself in the the best way. (laughs) And the other one is the one where if they just kill everyone involved immediately, that's the best way. Yeah, well, killing everyone involved in Wormwood Arena is not the best way, because then the thing is still out there, it's just radically disempowered. He just needs to eat more of, um... When I, when I was reading that scenario, I was thinking, man, the guy really read up on, like, gasoline <laughs> additives from the 1990s, he must have been super into that. <laughs> <laughs> it was what was the genesis of that was that like was that just a random fact that you had that oh you know the 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 gasoline of of yesteryear was slightly different i can't even remember uh where that came from is that i wanted i think it came from um oh i think it probably arose because i wanted to set it in a super fun site i'm like what is something because there is uh, a place my uh, my wife told me about she grew up in st louis and there's a town 
not too far from St. Louis. I can't remember the name of it that she was talking about where she's like, yeah, they depopulated the town because of pollution. There was some train crash. The whole area got soaked in super toxic chemicals and everyone just moved out. She's like, and you know, you hear rumors that there are squatters there now, but man, who's going to go to a place where the air is, you know, you can, you can smell how wrong it is. She's like, but apparently people do. It's like the people who moved back to Chernobyl because their government resettlement payments ran out. Or uh, what's that town in, uh, there's a town in in new england or appalachia that's been on fire for something like the coal seam fire yes i think it i want to say it was in pennsylvania that sounds right i don't remember but i know the one you're talking about where yeah because because it's a coal seam fire that was started when someone Centralia, pennsylvania centralia yes and and some people some people still live there right because people can get used to anything it was literally inspiration for silent hill (laughs) Yeah, I can see it. And and so I'm like, okay, so I want to have agents go to a super fun site and be, you know, it's like, oh, is this going to give me cancer in 10 years? Crap, 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 crap. I don't want to be here. But that. What's the time adjusted, time adjusted discounting for the sand loss on getting cancer? <laughs> yeah, 10 years later. Damn it. I knew this was going to kill me. Uh, the sad thing is, is that a Delta Green agent who lives to get cancer 15 years after the mission is probably way, way ahead of the curve. It's 15 years more than anybody else got. I've, uh, I've toyed with, I've, I've batted ideas around for sort of a Delta Green fiction podcast, right? Where every episode would be just a recording that's presented like a found object. I want to say there's a podcast someone on here really likes that does that. Yes. Um, no, it's actually, uh, you actually get a kick out of it because the creators have cited it as being uh, Unknown Armies as their inspiration. But it's called Archive 81. I know Tom and I listen to it. Love Archive 81. Yeah. Of the two horror podcasts that I listen to that have archive in the title, that's one of them. So yeah, the Magnus Archives are also quite good. Um, yeah. So there's the Magnus Archive and Archive 81. Um, Archive 81 does a lot more with music. Whoever they've got doing the music for it. I've tried to get Will to listen to it because Will's really big on uh, audio editing and Foley sound effects for his games and stuff. And Mark Powell, the guy who does it for Archive 81, is just magnificent with it. He cannot be getting paid anywhere near what he's worth for that. There's no way there's no way there's that much money in any podcast. Um, it's so clearly a labor of love. How would uh, found footage uh, Delta Green horror podcast go? Beyond, like, someone just finding, like, a cell phone of, like, people screaming and running away. No, it's, it's that uh, these are recordings that agents make during interrogations and debriefings. Oh, that's that's good. That's kind of like how uh, the final episode of uh, The Shield goes, where Vic Mackey, the, the big bad uh, evil cop, has been, uh, he's like, how much space you got on that recorder? Because he's about to sit down and tell, like, the entire story. Uh-huh. I never watched The Shield. I heard it was very, very gritty indeed. Very gritty, and what's really interesting about it, very briefly, is that they actually had to tone it down, because the reality is so much worse, if you know the Rampart Division in L.A., that Uh, they had to actually make it 
less worse. It is pretty bad. That's like, um, did you ever read There Are No Children Here? No. Uh, which is apparently, I, yeah, I, I have not brought myself to read it because it apparently is the most depressing thing about uh, poverty in Chicago and um, and the guy who wrote it, the anthropologist who wrote this book, he's like, oh, it's like, yeah, everyone who reads this says that it's this hor- so horrible and so depressing and so bleak and so hopeless. It's like, they don't understand how much I left out. It's like, there's stuff that I know happened that I could not put in the book because no one would believe it. I have a question that I wanted to ask about Unknown Armies. And the only question I have to ask is, uh, how the hell are you supposed to run it? Because the only time I've ever seen an Unknown Armies product and thought, yeah, I could do that, is um, when I got the free RPG day module, Maria in three parts, which I absolutely loved, by the way. I think it was fantastic. And that's the one that lays out pretty clearly, like, yeah, here's how the character, here's here's some characters, here's the storyline, here's how you're meant to interact with the world. But when I pick up the the actual books themselves, it's like, yeah, I just generate a conspiracy. Which episode? Which uh, edition do you have? Second or third? I uh, want to see. I want to say the last time I had any any look a look at it, it was um, someone was showing me some of the preview material for third, which is the the one that doesn't have the mythos. Oh, it does. It. Um. It does have a uh, still the same unknown armies, uh, you know, 333 aspects of humanity govern the the cosmos, destroy everything and recreate the world. Um, but one thing that I wrote very carefully into the GM guide for that was, okay, so in most games or in a lot of games, you have a preset... Uh, you know, you know what the core loop is. In Dungeons and Dragons, the core loop is you're going to go into a dungeon, kill some monsters, get some gold. In Delta Green, it has an extremely well-defined core loop, which is your federal agents, you're going to hear about some occult shit show, you're going to go in and douse that fire the best you can. But Unknown Armies is much more on the sandbox end of things. Uh, it is... In, in Dungeons and Dragons and Delta Green are in many ways extremely reactive. It's all about preventing something from happening. We're going to keep, you know, we're going to stop these monsters from uh, getting out of their dungeon or we're going to prevent this ritual that's going to summon this unspeakable awfulness. Whereas in Unknown Armies, you are the cultist. And so it starts out, you... As a GM, you have to trust your players to build the whole setting for you, or build the localized version of the setting for you, and baked in from the very start is, this is the thing we're try- we want to do and can't do. You have to let them pick the mission for their characters. Uh, an example I gave in, uh, in the book is, uh, you know, all of you have been on in one way or the other harmed by this politician who's just gotten reelected and you know and everyone loves her and the ch- the local sheriff is her brother-in-law and you are the only people who are immune to her sick perverse mind control powers how are you going to stop her and that's the arc of the game is the players defining ways that they're going to try and get around this evil mind controlling mayor and, you know, 
do something about it. And it definitely accepts the idea that you may start out with, oh, we're going to remove the mayor by any means possible, but that in the course of the game, the GM may say, even this? And they'll say, okay, no, not that. Or the GM may say, maybe if you remove the mayor, you're going to create a vacuum, and this specific thing that's even worse that she's holding back will get sucked in. And so it is possible that you can run a whole thing where, you know, we define the whole thing around beating the mayor, and at the end we don't beat the mayor because we chose to leave her in place. And I'm like, I assert that that can be a satisfying scenario because it's about the hard decisions the characters have made, and it has all been player-steered. But yeah, that's the hard part about Unknown Armies. It's, it's what makes it hard to... Uh, it's, it's why you can't just pop out scenarios for it the way you can with Delta Green, because the core loop is defined not by the game's writers, but by the game's players. That's something that we experienced a little bit because we, we gave Blades in the Dark a shot recently, um, and I ran it for uh, almost everyone that's here in the chat with us. And I came up with, uh, like, I don't know, maybe one paragraph worth of stuff to, to go, and then, like, everything else is just player-directed. Uh, player like, uh, you just wind the players up and let them go, see where they explore, see what happens. Uh, the phrase that that game uses and a couple others like Apocalypse where they say it's play to find out. Yep. In my in, in Unknown Army's case, um, the model I was thinking of is the railroad and the sandbox, right? And they're both valid ways of play. Sandbox is, oh, I'm going to set all these things out and see what the players do with them. And that's great if you're really good at responsive spur-of-the-moment improvisation, but not everyone is. Uh, the railroad is, okay, I'm pretty sure that the players are going to start here, see this terrible thing, intervene with it. That'll escalate the conflict until there's the big showdown on the burning oil derrick. And that also can work. That's also a valid way to play. Uh, the, the line I remember someone saying was, nobody minds a railroad if the seats are comfortable and the last stop is awesome town but I was trying to find a way to balance out those uh, those extremes. And I'm like, is there a way that I can get the benefits of the sandbox, which are that players are highly invested and are putting their creativity into making the game better and making the game move forward? Can I balance that out with the advantages of the railroad, which is that the GM has some friggin' clue what's going on? And so that that was what I tried to build into Unknown Armies 3rd Edition, uh, which is the idea that players are going to set goals and the GM will track how close they are. You know, So you've got your overall goal and then you have the, uh, the pieces you need to assemble to get there. And so as you assemble the pieces, you actually have a percentage of, you know, okay, this is, you know, we're 30% done with displacing the mayor, or we're 40% done or 70% done. And so the GM and the players know exactly how far along in the story they are, they are, which allows the GM a little more confidence in, okay, I can build this out ahead of them because 
I know they're likely to do A, B, or C because they've said A, B, and C are the things they're pursuing in uh, in support of displacing the mayor or, or whatever their objective is. That actually, uh, so I came into this recording session only knowing the unarmed, unknown armies exist, existed, but uh, you made me really want to take a look at it. So, which is kind of what happens every time I find out about a new RPG. So. <laughs> Uh, we had talked about trying to keep this to two hours. So anything you want to say in the last five, ten minutes to kind of close us out here? Um, no, I'm just, I'll, um, it's, it's been a treat. Thank you for having me on. Um, I've got, you know, a lot of games out there. Look for Unknown Armies and Termination Shock should be coming at some point uh, in in the foreseeable future. Damn, we're going to, we're going to pass you about one roll engine too. Well, I was going to say, Greg, you're going to see most of us at Gen Con, so uh, we can always beat you up about one more engine there. Yeah, well, we probably won't have rain by then, but, you know, you never know. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all we have for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you very much to Greg Stolze for coming on our show and being a wonderful guest. You can find all of the projects, along with his personal website, in the show notes below. You can also find links to our Greenbox social media pages and the Night of the Opera Discord, where you can play Delta Green games with us. Catch you next time, agents.